Hello, TTB community. I am Elliot Shibley, and this is the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is the propitious Robert Demena. And I know you're going to ask what that is, and it's giving or indicating a good chance of success or favorable. Okay. Or, you know, I guess archaic is favorably disposed towards someone. So I think I have to combine that with another word or another adverb to make mm. it really make sense. But, but all I, right, I, I, I got your point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think all so. Right. Uh, today we have a great conversation with Ursula. So she is a woman who, as a traveler already, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She had to go through the whole treatment process. She was obviously unable to travel. She was bedbound, but it she did not let it deter her. Deter her. She she um, used this experience to essentially push forward. I mean, she she treated it as an obstacle that needed to be overcome, and she did so. She continued to travel. She walked all over the UK, walked across Europe. It was a very inspiring conversation. I think regardless of where you are as a person, you'll find something in there to learn and to use to your own advantage. Uh, again, great conversation, and we're, we're hoping that you enjoy it. Yeah. Before we get into that conversation, the travel tip of the week is to bring your own water bottle with you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially because sometimes it's hard to find water bottles, but also there's a sustainable factor. Why not just have that water bottle with you at all times? So definitely a great tip. And before we get into the conversation, just check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be plan efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or a travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Ursula, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. We're really looking forward to talking to you today. So uh, I came across your story through, and, and we should say that, I think we have a friend in common, but I came across your story online. I found your Instagram um, and it is, uh, I, I was I was very interested in hearing what you had to say. So you are, you were diagnosed with ovarian cancer back in 2011 and sort of took it upon yourself to not only walk around to um, 
sort of, I think you, you put make your life a little wilder again, uh, from what I read in your bio, but also raise money and raise awareness about the, about ovarian cancer, about some of the, um, uh, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word, but like some of the, um, symptoms, symptoms. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Of, of, of ovarian cancer. And so, yeah. Um, why don't you just start us off with where you're from and sort of what you're doing, what you have been doing since 2011. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been quite an amazing 10 years. And, and actually, it really started before that 10 years as well, because um, ovarian cancer kind of interrupted um, what was uh, already um, an adventure. I was, I was traveling um, uh, basically in about 2008. Uh, I left a job working in a homeless hostel um, and I was 28 in 2008 and um, I was working in homeless hostels and I started to do some kind of counselling courses as a way to move on you know perhaps go into counselling as a career and part of um, becoming a counsellor requires that you, you kind of look at how messed up you are so you look at your reactions to the world and how you're um, shaping your experiences and I realized that um, I wasn't ready to be a counselor at all I was actually um, I, yeah I needed to I, I, I wasn't a, I wasn't ready to be a counselor I wasn't health you know mentally healthy enough to be a counselor and you know the ways the ways in which I was shaped uh, because of my experiences of life I, I, I wouldn't have been a good counselor so I decided to um, basically kind of do the classic thing of just give away half your possessions and pack the rest into storage and and put on a rucksack and go into the unknown and there's 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 very little that is truly the unknown in this world anymore but I, I do think that you can you know I'm I'm here in mid Wales right now and I could walk out of my door and go into the unknown today because it's about what I would meet in my personal situation rather than you know the unmapped the untraveled more general kind of human nature sense um so that's what I did I, I basically went to be spontaneous and I wound up um kayaking the length of the Danube oh, wow. in this uh in this group it was uh, the transition that I really like about um about from when I started to go traveling was that um when I began that journey I I did some volunteering I don't know if you've heard of like um working on organic farms and you know volunteer kind of systems that way and mm -hmm. I I kind of wave goodbye to my friends in Aberystwyth and I'm going off you know traveling and um and I I went to do a few kind of uh volunteer projects on organic farms making cider and you know gardening and things and that was at the start of two years and two years later I kayaked down the river Danube with no idea of where I was going to live or what I was going to do at the end of it and for me that was this complete success because I started off in this very structured way of organizing placements on farms and having having adventures but in this very kind of boundaried way where I knew what was going to happen and I knew that I was going to be safe because it was a, a kind of structured environment and by the end of it I was just able to I'd grown as a person enough that I could go and kayak and know that I would sort whatever happened out when I got to the end of the river and I did I um I found a house sit in Bulgaria and I was going to spend the winter in Bulgaria um, I started to volunteer at a local school just teaching English or helping the teachers with their English. And I thought, oh, I'll hitchhike home for Christmas um, before I set about whatever comes next summer in Bulgaria, that, you know, whatever is the next stage of my, my journey or my, you know, whatever I'm going for. Uh, and I hitchhiked home for Christmas and I, I basically went to the doctors, which turned into hospital, which turned into an ovarian cancer diagnosis. So um it was already a wild life and then cancer just really got in the way you know cancer really messed me up in that sense of of um immediately becoming very weak very vulnerable and and completely turning your life upside down in the sense of one minute I was in Bulgaria planning to travel and the next minute I'm 
back at home. I was in Cunliffe by this point um, with uh, an abdominal, you know, major abdominal surgery, a cancer diagnosis and potential, uh, you know, longer term treatment. I had to keep going back to hospital to um, to check that the cancer wasn't going to come back. So it was this huge upheaval, basically, of, of life at that point. And that was um, early 2012, which was, yeah, just 10 years ago now. So you were only 31 at that time when you were diagnosed? I was, yeah, I was 31. I, I had my thirty uh, second birthday as I was waiting wow. for the diagnosis, which was the most rubbish birthday ever. <laughs> so this, this conversation is, is very, it hits hard for me because my mom passed away from ovarian cancer three, two years ago now. Oh my gosh. Um, she was diagnosed in 2017 and uh-huh. she fought, she fought a good fight for a little over two years. Um, but it was, it was tough and it's, it's not, and she was late stage, so she wasn't able to identify it early. Um, that's exactly, that was the most shocking thing that was happened for me in that situation was learning about how many, um, incidences of ovarian cancer are not diagnosed until late stage. And, And at the point that I was diagnosed, um, like I said, 10 years ago, the survival rate was 35% over five years which was incredibly low and so you know being this all of a sudden you've got a cause and it you know this was a thing that I could do something about basically and so that was what led led to the symptoms awareness because if if more women do know about the symptoms they might be able to recognize it's so as you as you will no doubt already know it's so often mistaken for other illnesses and not diagnosed until it's in a it's not in a curative state anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah it's, it's horrible illness. So I'm curious, were you experiencing anything or did you think that some of the stuff that you were experiencing was just from your travels? Uh... It's, um, yeah, it's hard to say because I was doing this very intense physical thing of kayaking uh, two and a half thousand miles. And so my body was changing anyway. And I'm also a person who, who doesn't necessarily have good relationship with their body you know I was I grew up in the 90s when you know women's body image you know pressure and and um the the only way that I grew up um learning to see my body was whether it was thin or fat or whether it was attractive or not and so I do think um as I've grown as a person and as I've matured I've come to a different appreciation of my body and all the functional ways in which it supports me in this life and Part of that is learning to see, you know, bloating as a symptom of something different. So I was, I was, um, so yeah, I did this kayaking and then I, I was having symptoms while I was, I was all alone in a house sit, looking after um, a British person's second home in very rural Bulgaria, um, all alone in this village full of nobody who really spoke English. And I, I was chopping my wood and I was making my fires and I was starting to write at that point. I wanted to write about the Danube trip I'd just experienced. And so I was having symptoms, but I was not able to recognize them in any way as being something wrong. Um, And that was kind of, and I think there's that innocence or arrogance of youth maybe as well, where you don't really, you don't really check out your body in those kinds of ways. So yeah, I had it was a big shock. I mean, what, a huge what, shock. what are some of the symptoms um, that people should that women should be aware of? So um, it can be difficulty eating or feeling full really quickly. It can be bloating or constipation, and it can be abdominal pain. Um, and sometimes it can be difficulty urinating. So really, it's nothing to do with your actual period because. Um, what's happening is the tumors are, the tumor or tumors are growing and they are interfering with your other abdominal um, functions so th- those are some of the symptoms and it it's it's basically it's about pain or discomfort that is extended you know it goes on for a longer period of time of a few weeks and if it's unusual for you hmm. and it it's it's horrible to have such vague symptoms to have to try and look out yeah. for but that is what it is. And I'm curious because I feel like 31 is fairly young to be diagnosed 
but I'm not really sure yeah. when when people can actually get it. Or when it's, uh, most, it's common. most common in women over fifty five. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I was, I was, I oh. was, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was an unusual, yeah. unusual okay. occurrence. Yeah. So I'm surprised the doctors even thought to look for that. Well, what happened with me was that I had a very large single tumor. So the tumor was um, the the growth. I don't know what an American is that a size of an American football. I don't know. Oh wow! <laughs> it's big. I would say like a rugby ball That's or like wow. a small a small rugby ball. Yeah. Um, well, 30 centimeters, 25, 30 centimeters. So the whole thing grew and it was all up. It was like pressing up against underneath my diaphragm. But the lucky, the really lucky thing for me. So they, so obviously that's just right. Let's get whatever this is out. And they didn't know whether it was cancer or a cyst. And I, so I just had this one kind of balloon and it all came up one side of my body. And um, yeah. I mean, I'm an idiot, really, for not knowing, you know, like, it's just, it was a real, yeah, it, it showed me a lot about how much I didn't appreciate, I, I wasn't reading, it's about, um, I think every human has a relationship with their own body that's really um, particular to them and their culture and their life experiences, and, and um, I think we can all probably have different learning and appreciation to do of, of the interaction between our brains and our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my wife works in medicine and she is very particular about making sure we both get our, you know, yearly doctor's visits. If we have something that persists for more than a few days, actually get it checked out. Don't do the uh, silent stoic and just fight through the pain and hoping it goes away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Ursula, how did this, how did this diagnosis, how did this enormous shift in your life um, change the way you traveled and the way you sort of sought out new experiences? I do think um, as much as I, I don't like to really um, say that cancer changed my life, people want there to be this kind of before and after and, you know, it, it didn't I wanted to get back to normal it just so happened that for me my normal was was um adventuring and wild camping you know I'd been having this really kind of incredible spontaneous life where freedom is very important to me like a sense of freedom a sense of liberty so I wasn't um to get the money to uh, go and kite the length of the Danube I went and worked in a plant nursery for three months and I found a campsite two miles down the road and I lived in a tent for I was working on minimum wage to get money for for this trip and I saved 70% of a minimum wage job because I lived in a tent you know it was really important to me to have these really intense kind of short-term periods of work and then use that money to go off and be what I call free um so the one of the early things that I did um very six months really after after um the cancer after my illness was I had to keep going to hospital I had to keep going to check that the cancer hadn't come back and um I saw that from where I was living I was about 200 miles away from the hospital and I saw that these two rivers came out of a mountain about four or five miles away from my house and I could follow one river all the way down to the city where my hospital appointment was. And then I could follow the other river back up to the source, back to the same mountain. And so basically I could walk to hospital and I could walk home again. And so six months after my illness, I did that. And that took me um, six weeks, I think, 400 miles. And that was the return to normality. And so there was this sense of, of, of like, okay, what can I, can my body handle this can my you know my my psychologically I was massively affected by the cancer because of the vulnerability of it because it wasn't just having a cancer it was having a cancer well basically I went to um I went to a friend's house for new year I was sleeping on their sofa I said oh I've got this weird feeling in my stomach and they said well go to our doctor as a guest 
So I was homeless, essentially, while my illness, when my illness started. And so I think as much as the shock of the cancer, there was also the shock of the vulnerability, the intense vulnerability that I experienced during the cancer experience of, you know, I, I was basically taken in by a friend of my parents um, in order to be in the same uh, city that I first went to the doctor in to stay with the same hospital. And that's a that's a lot. That's a, a lot to experience. So I was as much kind of traumatized by that as I was by the cancer itself. So there was this kind of um, I couldn't just go back to Bulgaria and carry on where I left off. You know, things had really changed for me. So this walking to hospital was kind of this way of of um, questioning questioning and showing myself am I still the same person that I was before and am I able to go and do these things that I love doing so much am I am I capable mentally as well as physically yeah <clears throat> and so it's been 10 years right so 10 years the answers the answers was yes <laughs> yeah a resounding right? yes yeah. yeah um and so how many different trips have you taken since since then and um I guess just talk us through some of those experiences um I mean this the, the short version is I've I've done two major walks um totaling roughly 9,000 miles uh, the first one was an extent it grew out of the, the walking to hospital um, because I basically thought well what if I could walk to hospital down one river what if I didn't walk straight home what if I walked up the border of Wales and around the coast of Wales and um, <coughs> excuse me. um what yeah what if I walked up the border of Wales and around the coast and then I could add in all these different routes. I got really excited. I basically got this list of paths, the long distance paths that were in Wales. And I kept seeing ways that I can include different routes that went into this really flowing kind of journey. Like you could walk around on the coast. You could come to the mouth of a river, walk up it to the source and find the source of a different river within a mile or two miles and walk back down that second river to the coast again so you've got this oh, circular cool. you've got this loop you know this circular kind of way of the flow so I never had to stop in one place and start in another um and I basically I I had no idea what I was doing um my hospital appointments were six months apart at that point so I thought right I'll walk to hospital take a month about that then have six months and then walk home take another month about that so that was eight months um and I ended up I didn't calculate the route properly, so I don't know how much I thought it was. I think I thought it was 3,300 miles. And I thought, I can absolutely fit that into eight months at 19 miles a day, no problem. Because I, don't, I just don't know why I thought I could do that, but I, I did. <laughs> um, and it ended up, uh, it took me uh, 17 months. Well, I did have a break because my brother was ill. But it took me 17 months in total and it was 3,700 miles so it was also a massive miscalculation wow. <laughs> but the, the really important thing that I learned during that journey was that I could do it on my own terms and so I had uh, quite bad plantar fasciitis I wasn't stretching as much as I should have been and after a couple of months the pain started to be you know the pain is in your heels with plantar fasciitis it's kind of quite a sharp pain um and i i basically had this kind of crisis point where it's like the, the mental pressure to keep to this time scale was crushing me and i just had to have this complete mental kind of reorganization of i can do this if i walk a mile a day i can do i can complete this walk um and so it was this complete reorganization of what i considered to be failure you know, in terms of how hard I was pushing myself and what standards I was trying to meet. And I did, I did. I walked kind of usually about 10 miles a day for the rest of the time. And after a while, the, plan, the, the, the pain in my feet was better. By the second summer, I was back up to 15, 17 miles a day. 
and um and I did it I finished the walk you know I got to, I got back to hospital I I walked home I raised you know 13,000 pounds for a couple of char- cancer charities and what was really lovely about that walk was that it was all in my own country I was born in Wales I grew up in England it, I've lived in Wales I mean now it's been half my life I have I have intense knowledge and depth of contact in Wales and and it's it was the really lovely thing about basically if you stick a pin in a map of Wales which is about 200 meters long and it's about 40 miles wide at its narrowest point stick a pin in a map of that country and I've walked within nine miles of it and so I had this like (laughs) real crisscross route all the time and what was so beautiful about that was to to walk all the way down a river you know, a big curve, semicircle curve, and then to walk north up and cut the line of where you walked before. And so I'd have these constantly, by the end of the journey, I'd have these experiences where I'd come to the top of a hill and I'd be able to look into a valley and know that I'd walked there six months previously. And I'd have this little mental image of me, you know, kind of chugging away like, with my massive rucksack and just <laughs> like I had these two um the last thing I did before I left the house to go on the Welsh walk was um I pulled this Welsh flag out of a drawer and I said to my friend she was giving me a lift down to the town where I was going to officially start from and I said oh what shall I do with this and she said well you've left me all your gardening stuff in the porch to take you know to take to my place what about you put it on a bamboo stick so my during the first Welsh walk, my bamb- my walking poles were two bamboo sticks, just like gardening sticks. Yeah. And I had a flag on each on each of them for um well, it's for fundraising and attention drawing. So the whole time I just like and the when when I started off walking, they were longer, so the flags would flutter above my head, but obviously the bamboo like ground down. And I lost about 10 inches off each pole. And then the flags would just hit me in the face all the time. <laughs> um, but it was brilliant. It was, it, was, it was a really kind of happy, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but it was a really joyful, happy walk because it was in my own country. And I got loads and loads of help all the time. So one of the real notable things that happened was that everyone passed me to everyone else. And it was this real, oh, this woman's walking around, you know, help her. She's had cancer, blah, blah, blah. And so once it got to be like every two or three days, I'd I'd put a little star on the map for every invitation I had. Someone would get in touch and say, oh, I'm in Caerphilly. When you get there, come and, you know, come and stay with me. All over the whole country. And so every, yeah, every two, three, four days, I would have someone to go and stay with. And so it was a really, really sociable, um, kind of joyful. It was always, you know, people were always rejuvenating my energy as I walked because they were all being so helpful and friendly to me. Yeah. yeah. That's that's amazing. I mean, so one of the things, a reoccurring theme on this podcast is that uh, we've realized people make trips more than pretty much anything else. I not more than pretty much. Absolutely. Like it's the people. Right. And so it's a sense of community and the relationships that you have with people and the people that you meet that really make those trips fantastic. And it seems like this is sort of like a uh, a hyper concentrated experience in that regard because it's not like you're in your own country you are in your own country you're you're getting these experiences with your neighbors your community and so it really just adds a different layer to that uh, yeah this so this is very interesting to me because i have had a conversation with my wife about um because we're big hikers and we thought how cool would it be to literally hike almost every single mile of every trail in a single national park and okay. it would take a long time because most national parks have a lot of trails and you would really get to know one park because a lot of people will go to each park and hike a small portion of it but you really intimately know Wales probably better like geographically physically and the community better than probably a single person in Wales now and mm. we've had other people on the podcast that have done long walks across multiple countries and this idea of literally knowing almost every single corner and having seen 
every single corner of Wales is fascinating to me. Mm, I'm sure mm. I know, Bob, you have one and Ursula, maybe you have one too, but have you seen those scratch off maps where you can scratch off the country that you've been to? And I always think about that. Like if you go to Russia and you scratch off Russia, you're, you really haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah. And you really only see, like, I guess, depending on how clear the day is, how high up you were, you can see like a good 20 mile radius around you. So I don't know. I know Wales tends to have some rainy days, but I would imagine you have seen pretty much every inch of Wales at this point. Like Gosh, physically. Yeah, I, hadn't thought, you... I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. There's a few nooks and crannies on this. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. I, I like that idea. But there's, I mean, it still has potential to surprise me. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, like you say, you you know, you take a route through, and then you you spend half an hour in a place, and then feel like you've been there, or mm -hmm. it's not really. And then some people spend their whole lives in one place. You know, mm -hmm. Wales is a rural farming community for them for the for a lot of it, and there are still people in my local area who have you know the, the pensioners the very old farmers who have not been further than 20 miles from the place that they were born and they're they're very rare obviously in this day and age they're very few mm -hmm. and far between but there is it's a very very different relationship with place and i i do like yeah i mean i like that idea of of knowing somewhere intimately like you're saying with the national parks i think it's something I think it's something different that is perhaps in the, um, in terms of a, a literature writing sense, I think that in modern day, um, you have kind of nature writing, which can be sometimes very intensely about place and knowing single places. And then you have adventure writing, which is about, you know, a much more kind of broad spectrum of, of, um, of, experiencing and knowing loads of different places and sometimes yeah. it's not about knowing places at all it's just about passing through them and yeah i do think perhaps we're moving you know maybe as, as there is less to explore in the world and bring the newness of it we are moving towards this sense of nature writing and sense of more intense place yeah it's, yeah it's maybe that's really, an interesting project for you to it is. take on yeah so um with your with your hiking i want to get into some of the specifics because it's really interesting i think walking and hiking is a very underrated form of transportation and movement um we seem to always be wanting to get to the place and not appreciate the journey and so this hiking is were you on trails i know uh the uk and wales specifically has a right to roam law where you can go through private land legally as long, right? No? That's Scotland. Oh, it is? That's okay, the, so Wales yeah, doesn't have... Yeah. Oh. No, England and Wales are much more aligned in terms of their um, laws, and Scotland, as it maintained its independence longer, it still keeps a lot of its own laws. Okay. So Scotland has rights to roam. Yeah. Okay. And it, in, in Wales, you're, it's footpath. Okay. Yeah. All right. So were but you it on... Does have in the sense of being a very ancient country with a very, very, very old um, history of, of the same humans using the land, it has an intensely, um, a well-used, uh, an intricate footpath system. Okay. So, you know, when you have footpaths in this country, there's sometimes they will be hundreds and hundreds of years old because they're the very, very old ways in which humans used to get from one place to the other and that's just kind of been maintained because we've had such a um an uninterrupted uh system of government okay and are those are those footpaths sometimes through private property um they tend to be yes yeah so you'll have footpaths which will go through farmers fields or they, if they go through if you get older footpaths going through people's gardens they'd usually be kind of rerouted so okay um but yeah they'll go through a footpath goes through private property yeah okay yeah because yeah, on your website i know you have uh kind of 
a series of maps that show your route and how it kind of developed. And it's just cool to look at. So the footpaths, and I guess you did some walking on roads at times, especially mm. when you hit to more urban or suburban environments. Um, so what was your gear like? And you talked a little bit about where you slept, but what did you do those nights that you weren't with someone that wanted to put you up? Um, so, oh gosh, I think what I was doing at that point in time, so obviously we're going to come on to the fact that I've walked across Europe, right? And then, you know, there's a whole other second journey. So this, this one was very much um, in the early days of gear knowledge. And so I'm, I've always been a, per I'm kind of allergic to that, um, collector's sense of gear in terms of like I don't research and I don't need to know everything about yeah. what I'm using it's it's always been like in terms of being um it was about price basically I just needed some cheap you know anything that would get me get me out there so I've made terrible choices and <laughs> suffered for it <laughs> um so the first walk I was actually in full leather um boots the whole time which I've since moved away from and I'm much more about uh kind of lighter more flexible boots for example um I had um I slept under a tarpaulin for the first eight months of the journey it was coming towards the first winter October so I was just bivvying out the whole summer spring summer set off on the first of March um, and I had so I had my walking poles and you could kind of and I had a piece of tarpaulin and you could make a really rough, um, you know, triangular shelter. Um, I just sleep anywhere. I just sleep anywhere, really, and get wet a lot quite often because, you know, you find some some old stone wall and you do your best to kind of tie the thing. But you're usually like really tired at the end of the day and you're just so exhausted and all you want to do is sit and stare into space. So you just like shove it under some stones to kind of make it a bit taut and then you do it really badly basically I don't know any knots you know I'm not I'm not like focused on perfection yeah or this this sense of of um um what's the word um I don't need to know and control everything before I do it so I don't you know I think a lot of people's kind of anticipation of, of um, a wilderness or a dangerous, you know, mildly dangerous experience like this is to take account of all possible eventualities and know them and in order to be able to control them, to be able to control fear. And what I've always been working towards is not to be underprepared, but to be in a state of flow so that you just have the confidence that you're going to be able to react to whatever happens in the moment and you know I probably should learn some knots to make me better able but in that sense of like not needing to know what the weather's going to be at all times or so I just yeah I just bumbled through it basically and that does make me sound naive um but I, I just I'd rather be in a state of, of allowing possibility than of intensely controlling possibility, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. We had a, just, so I think this ties very well into one of our episodes that we had. We, we do this panel discussion called our Travel Roundtable series. And it was um, about navigating cities. And we had a very different spread of individuals who like Bob and myself, Bob is very much a planner and has things that he wants to have lined up for everything. And then I, I will plan some things, but there was just a very like opposite ends of the spectrum. And it seems like sometimes that is when we essentially determine that planning is good for the type of person you are and not planning is good for the type of person that you are. So you just kind of got to feel that out. And then mm. we did... I think everyone agreed that not planning does lead to more spontaneity and more creativity. Mm -hmm. And perhaps a little more discomfort. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. A little, but, but what I learned, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm the planners, but what I learned from the non-planners was that the fumbling, the, the having to deal with things on the fly, the uh, unknowns are part of what makes the experience great for that person. Yeah. You know, if, if for someone to step off of a plane and who doesn't like to plan and already know what they're going to do and where they're going to go, it, diminishes their experience they they don't like that that's not fun for them um they want mm -hmm. to try to figure it out sort of like mm -hmm. a puzzle uh you know putting together a puzzle in real time whereas i the planner like to arrive with the finished puzzle yeah sort like of use it as a treasure map or something yeah. <laughs> yeah and so and again it's just preferences right and it's just a matter of what you find enjoyable and ultimately that's the right thing and that's sort of what oh. makes travel beautiful is that you can have all these different ways of doing it uh, on an individual level and ultimately oh. the goal is always the same right it's to find enjoyment with people and culture oh. and food and architecture that's all we're all doing yeah. and it's just broaden your horizons um, and expand your uh expand your ability to experience new things yeah yeah and and you have so many layers to yours right so it's really it's it's quite fascinating um well i guess the beginning of this conversation started with you going to try to become um a counselor and not yeah. feeling like you were in the right mental state to provide yeah. that uh service and throughout your 17 month trip and the other, you know, seven years before that and going through ovarian cancer, getting that treatment, do you feel like you're in a better place where you fully understand who you are and have that mental capability? Have you thought about pursuing becoming a counselor again? No, I'm very selfish, really. I don't think I want to, yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, it, I, I am, I don't know if I'm a better person. Um, I probably am a better person because I'm not operating from a place of fear as much as I used to be. And, you know, fear can make you selfish and, and sharp and nervous, you know, in, in that sense. Um, I, think, I think what all my experiences have done is to show me who I am more than anything else and for me that is a process of letting go of control and that is a process of learning to accept failure as well and learning to um i guess it's that spontaneity of of yeah lack of um That's all it is. That's all it is. And yeah. so as as I shed expectation and nervousness, I could really truly I mean, I've truly tested myself over the over the past ten years, not just cancer, but you know, pushing myself to walk three thousand seven hundred miles through Wales then the part that we haven't got onto yet which is pushing myself to walk 5,000 miles alone across Europe um yeah you have to exist in a state of flow and that I I now know that I am a very very strong person and I think once you've shown yourself it's you, I can't exist in a state of self-doubt anymore because I've really proved to myself what I can do. I, I did a walk, I wrote a book, I did another walk, and now I'm writing another book. And these are concrete... Um, accomplishments? Concrete accomplishments that I cannot undermine, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what's made me a better person. So I'm calmer for that. And then it means I have more space to listen and give to other people because I don't feel in a constant state of um, low self-esteem based need. Yeah. I don't need to take anymore because I'm now fulfilled and I can give. And that's a very different state of mind. Well, so really it is. 
to, to come to come out of that those experiences with this new state of mind obviously there were sort of micro experiences along the way that led to this overall you know transformation do you have any specific time you know people that you met conversations that you had uh, experiences in natural environments that sort of led to the the you know the the full transformation or you know the the accomplishments anything in, in um, particular yeah well so I mean I'm I'm just going to jump into a much later point in the story so I've been walking across Europe for two years at this point the pandemic had hit I was trying my best to carry on with my uh, walk despite the pandemic and uh, which involved you know going into lockdowns out of lockdowns huge and basically the all the pandemic did was show me what an anxious person I am because it was absolutely hideous to be I mean world events have been in, incredibly unsettling for the last two years especially and I think we're all in a, in a kind of advanced state of of fear and nerves at the moment you know we're all on edge and I was basically not really able to stay very calm during the intense pressure of trying to continue a solo walk during the pandemic so I was in France first lockdown in France then the summer came and I walked across south of France and into the Pyrenees and during the autumn I did um, an east-west traverse of the Pyrenees I tried to follow the Haute Route Pyrenees um, there was too much snow so I ended up going down to lower levels and but basically I did an east-west traverse it's I don't know how many hundred miles of the Pyrenees and I got into um, Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in France and there was another lockdown in France and Spain had closed regional borders and there was this enormous amount of, of pressure of how could I go and complete the route that I wanted to complete and should I ethically continue traveling in this point where every people weren't being told to stay at home but you know how ethical is it to continue traveling in this this you know dangerous place this was um christmas 2020 by this point mm. and um i know that in all the different countries around the world the pandemic has been in different you know states of growth and shrinking at different points but so it was this real moment of of awfulness basically and i i was just about i decided I'm going to go into Spain. I'm going to do it. I have to get to, I don't know if you're aware of the Camino de Santiago, which is this kind of ancient pilgrimage route across the top of Spain. And I really very much wanted to do that. So I was going to walk, I was going to do it. I was going to walk across the mountains into Spain. Technically, legally, but it was a barely, I basically had the address of a friend that I was going to visit. And at Christmas, you were allowed to visit other people's houses. So I was going to walk in and get in on this legal technicality. And um, I was just about to uh, leave. And the, the night before I left the hostel, this English guy came into the hostel. And he was having a great time because he had also just walked the length of the Pyrenees. And he just did not seem bothered by the pandemic at all. And... Um, and we had this whole, you know, I was just so like, am I doing the right thing? And what should I do? And I was really weighed down by my decisions. And he was just like, just go and have a go. You know, what's the worst that will happen? You'll get stopped by the police or. He was just like, I think you'll be fine. And it was that moment. Of, of conversation with him that showed me how much I was mentally weighting myself in that moment with mm -hmm. fear and anticipation and anxiety not all of which was entirely you know unfounded but again and again I think I learn that it is my choice of perspective that affects how I am in that moment and so quite often I'll meet people and they'll kind of ping me out of a state of mind that I didn't, a rut that I didn't realise that I was in. And so he, his name was Mark and he's um, like, um, I think he's a professional photographer. We follow each other on Instagram, you know, because that's how you keep in touch with people. 
but he really he really you know just he he really took me out of my mindset at a really really important moment and and so I I crossed into Spain and I did end up reaching Santiago and Finisterre and it was this huge point in the journey because I just walked from Kiev Ukraine all the way across Europe to the Atlantic Ocean and it was a gigantic moment for the walk you know and it was so important for me personally it was incredibly important that I got there yeah wow it's it's really interesting what the pandemic has given us because there's the obvious things like work from home and these other things but I think from a mental perspective it seems like there's been a boom in you know mindfulness practices and spirituality trying to find Mm. uh, a way to cope and understand everything that's going on and really understand that we have such little control and to know what we do have control of and be comfortable with that Mm. i think i think that's a very healthy response what happened and i also think a lot of people had very unhealthy responses yes yes. (laughs) yeah that's true too it's true i think what i agree in the sense that there was this global loss of control Mm -hmm. and what i you know in my experience was this intense scrabbling for control which then means control of information you know in terms of like trying to work out what this thing is and how it is truly going to affect us there was just this out racing for you know any snippet of information we possibly could in the early days and it was it was i found it very overwhelming and frightening yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's funny my wife and i were talking about this yesterday how you know in the beginning of the pandemic when it first came to the us when we had first lockdown in you know end of march 2020 and oh. or april of 2020 as well we we're we didn't even know if it was okay to really, you know, go outside of your house to for the chance of running into someone a hundred feet away. And you know, looking back on it now, it's like, geez, I would have spent every minute outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in in Spain, the the culture was to wear masks outside at all times. Yeah. So even in the Pyrenees, as I was walking in the Pyrenees, you know, right out in the mountains. I would meet people and they would pull the masks up over their faces for the for the moment of us passing each other mm-hmm. and it, so much of it was a, this unknown state of, yeah. of how infectious is this and what do we do and you know what's happening it felt like this disintegration in some ways of, I mean because I again I'm jumping ahead in the story but I basically woke up in a in the um not the cellar exactly it was a room in the base of a church deep in the forest of the Ligurian mountains in Italy and I woke up and checked my phone and Italy had gone into lockdown it was the 8th of March 2020 and all of a sudden it was like all citizens go to their homes and don't come out and I'm sleeping in the forest like I had no home like what the (laughs) hell and it was just it was so intense it was so intense and it did feel like this apocalyptic kind of scenario and i basically just walked out of italy (laughs) as quickly as i could you had the perfect mentality for this right it it seems as though and i don't know if you did at this point in time but um you encompass this sort of idea of you know it's not what happens it's how you sort of respond to what happens that really matters um Mm -hmm which is just a great general philosophy uh, for life. There's a few things that you mentioned that I think are fascinating and are worth noting, you know, going over the worst case scenario <clears throat> before you make a decision, I, I find mm. to be mm. incredibly beneficial, you know, because a lot of times you have this uh, analysis paralysis as we've heard used, Elliot yes. and I have heard used, right? So when you're, you're, you're analyzing a situation, do I do this, do I do that? And I think one of the best ways to make to, de- to decide to make a decision is to say, what's the worst thing that will happen? And well, sometimes it, it could be significant and you're like, okay, that's pretty bad. But, you know, I shouldn't do this. <laughs> or, but most of the time it's not that bad. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I might lose my job. Well, you know, uh-huh. I could get another job really, or, you know, and whatever it is. And so 
I think evaluating it, um, most of the time you'll realize that the worst case scenario isn't that bad. It's manageable. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, why don't, why don't, why don't I try? Why don't I see what I can do? Um, yeah. I think that that's what you did, you know, obviously. Uh, and, and it's an incredible story. It's really fascinating. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that you did, truly. Really happy to hear yeah. it. Um, one question I want to ask you as we sort of wind down here uh, is, um, unfortunately, you know, ovarian cancer is not uncommon and um, it's going to impact more people. So if someone is in the early stages of what you went through right now, uh, what would you say to them um, about, about how they should navigate this new lifestyle? So I think my, I almost kind of didn't get to process my cancer experience until it was over because what my, I don't know if this is common, but for me, a, a, my cancer experience was basically a sequence of waiting for the next appointment. So they go, there's something wrong, we'll send you for a blood test. And then they go, the blood test shows something's weird, we'll send you for a scan. And then they go, okay, the scan shows this, so we'll, now you get an operation. And then I had to wait for the results of the operation. And then I had to wait the results of more tests to see if there was more cancer in my body. So there was always this waiting for you're in this like horrific limbo basically that's where I was for three months and so I couldn't process it or close the door on it until it was over and and so I think I would say to anybody who's who's in a similar experience is just do whatever the hell you need to get through this and don't worry if what you need to get through this is a packet of cigarettes and a bottle of gin, do it. Eat cakes. You know, like, don't, don't, don't fix on all the small things that you can do to, to fix it. Fix on what you need to get through it. Because a lot of, so much of this is out of your hands. You know, the worst thing has come to pass. It's a cancer. You can't fix this by yourself. It is in the hands of the medical professionals. So get through it and then focus on healing yourself. And, you know, I think there's this kind of potential, like, now I must only drink, you know, alkaline water. And like, it's this, it's again, it's this way of trying to take control of a thing which is completely out of control. And there is stress in trying to control things that you can't control. Absolutely. So just ride, ride the hideous wave of cancer in whatever way you need to, and then work on sorting yourself out. And also another thing that I would just add um, at the end is, is I think it's really important to be weak. So that kind of goes against like all these, these ways in which you know, stay strong and fight and all these things. But when I was um, in the immediate aftermath of my abdominal surgery, I couldn't walk. Obviously, I've just had major abdominal surgery. You know, walking to the other side of the room was a real struggle. And I was trying to come down the stairs and I was getting really frustrated, basically, and upset. And my mum rarely says wise things to me, but this was something wise that she said. She said, you have to be weak for a while. And now I think of it as in you, you cannot build on weak foundations. So if you need to completely crumble and let yourself go, there will come a time when you have to do that because you have to build strong again from the base up you have to excavate completely in order to be able to do that so when you need to be weak accept weakness because that's how you come to be truly strong wow thank you for sharing that wow um ursula so uh we we do have a rapid fire round that we're going to get into before we let you go okay Uh, yeah but before we do can you just share your website and your social media where can people follow you where can people purchase your book 
uh, and, sure. and check out some of the stuff that you've done. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's um, I'm on onewomanwalks.com um, and and then the same on Instagram and um, Instagram or Facebook. And my first book is called One Woman Walks Wales, and that is probably available on Amazon or from the um, the publisher, which is Hono. And I'm working on a second book about walking across Europe. I'm excited. Which for, God knows yeah. when that's going to come out. Yeah. <laughs> really quick, when did you when did you complete your Europe trip? Or are you still in the middle the of it? Europe? No, it's it's that was done in June 2021. So okay. set off 2018, finished 2021. Nice. Okay. Yeah, right. that seems like a. I mean, we covered a little bit of that, but we focused mostly on Wales. But that seems like it could be an, entirely a, another conversation. Yeah, well, it how was about, huge. Uh, it was uh, huge. <laughs> Ursula, when you when you're close to finishing the book and getting ready to promote it, or yeah, so after you finish it and you're ready to promote it, why don't you reach out to us and we can go through that trip in detail? Because yeah, yeah, I think it deserves its own podcast. We didn't really get a chance to talk about it, but. Um, no, I mean is... it started in Ukraine, it finished in Spain, and then it's five and a half thousand miles across Europe. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot I of countries think, in I there. I think you that... might be right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you know, for the record, I do appreciate you converting uh, all of these distances to miles for uh, you know us Americans. Oh, no, it's okay. I work. Yeah. I work in miles as well. I've oh, constantly nice. got the little um, the calculation going on in my head. I did know. I, I noticed it throughout the the, the yeah. talk today that you said everything in miles and so uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't happen a lot with our you know british counterparts or our right. um, yeah, w- w- welsh counterparts yeah i guess uh-huh. anybody internationally <laughs> yeah really yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all right y'all you ready to do the the rapid fire round okay yeah, let's do it. it we have five questions ursula what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel adventure all right uh what travel book or book had the biggest influence on your life? Dervla Murphy, um, Dublin to Delhi by bicycle. Everybody should read that. Dublin to Delhi by bicycle. Dervla Murphy rode a bike to India in 1962 alone, as a woman alone. She is the most bad, she is the most awesome woman. She's Irish, she's incredible. Yeah, that uh, sounds like have, a great story. Everyone should. She's she's brilliant. She rode through Afghanistan alone in a, in the wow. early sixties. Pakistan and Afghanistan. She is absolutely like if I can be anything like her at all, I'll be happy. Wow, that's crazy. She's really tough. She's really tough. Next question is: What is one practical thing that travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? Oh. <sighs> To enhance their next travel yeah. experience. Um, mindfulness. It's a great one. Yeah, that is a good one. cultivate one. cultivate a, a different approach. All right. And on the flip side of that, tell us one thing travelers should not do. Um, Forget about global politics <laughs> and colonialist history as one English woman to two Americans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. And uh, the, the last question, uh, what is one piece that, of advice that you would give to yourself 10 years ago? <sighs> Listen to your body and know yourself love it ursula thank you so much for coming mm-hmm. on the, the show today really enjoyed every second of, the, of this conversation uh mm-hmm. thank you for and, inviting uh, me. yeah looking forward to talking to you again looking forward to seeing what else you do over the years as you <laughs> continue to travel as the pandemic restrictions now ease and we can move about yeah. a little bit more so yeah thanks for coming on really appreciate your time today great thanks for having me I know that my mom would have loved this conversation. As many of you know, my mom passed away from ovarian cancer, as I mentioned in the show, about two and a half years ago. 
And I'm just really happy to see Ursula still being able to do what she loves and using her platform to bring awareness to ovarian cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, cancer is something that impacts almost everybody. And it's just mind boggling how uh, how widespread it is and, and how many people are dealing with the impacts of cancer in some way, shape or form, whether it's a family member uh, or they themselves are suffering from it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we should... We, we, there, there should be no shortage of these types of conversations um, because they are inspiring. And it, it was great to talk to her and hear from her firsthand on how she did it, you know. And so I really yeah. love that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you enjoy this, this podcast, you enjoy listening to Elliot and I talk, please consider helping us out with a review on iTunes, a social media like, share, post, comment, whatever it is that the social media algorithm enjoys, whatever it feeds off of. Um, and, and if you want to support us in a financial way, there is a link to do so. You know, you can donate as little as a dollar and it helps the it helps go to software programs, time and energy, things like that. So we do appreciate it. Even if you consider it, we do appreciate it. Um, regardless of what you decide to do, stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week. <laughs>